Thank you, Diana. We appreciate that message and song. And my understanding that Dennis and Diana are heading to North Carolina here very shortly. So we appreciate their ministry at our church and uh, hope we can stay in touch with them. If you've ever spoken with Diana, she also has the gift of encouragement. Uh, she always says something uh, very encouraging. Well, good morning again. Thank you for joining us for worship today. Uh, hope everyone has had a good week. Hard to believe we are one week into August already. Some of our kids have already gone back to school. Okay. Uh, for some of you, that's a good thing. For others, maybe not so much. Okay. Um, but most of them uh, will be back in school here in the next uh, couple of weeks. Now, to be honest, to be honest, I wish summer was a little bit uh, longer. Uh, we just finished up a, a five-week study on Wednesday nights with our preteen group on the life of Gideon, and I really enjoyed it. Um, as with, with most things, when we teach, we probably learn more uh, than the kids that we are teaching. Um, but we had a lot of fun this summer, and uh, I hope it's something we can do again next summer as well. Um, we also appreciate uh, the youth allowing uh, the fifth and sixth graders to join them for praise and worship time on Wednesday night this summer. Um, we would sing with the older kids and then split off at uh, lesson time, and that's when we studied the life of Gideon. So that's what I'd like to do this morning, is share just a few things that we learned about Gideon this summer. And the main point of our study was simply that Gideon learned to trust God. He learned to trust in God. It was a process. It was a journey. It was a pretty remarkable one. Where Gideon ended up was far different from where he started now, we're not going to be able to cover everything this morning that we talked about this summer, okay? We're not going to be able to go outside for game time, all right? But if you listen carefully and do a good job and keep your hands to yourself, maybe we'll get some ice cream afterward, okay? All right? No promises, though, all right? Um, but I trust you'll see through the story of Gideon what it looks like to trust in the Lord. Gideon's story is recorded in Judges 6 through 8. We don't have time to read all three chapters, but let's read the first 16 verses of chapter 6, and then over the next few minutes, I'll read some additional verses. So as is our custom, and as you're able, let me encourage you to please turn to Judges 6 and stand as we read. Again, Judges 6, 1 through 16, I'll be reading from the NIV. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, 
neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Verse 6, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this opportunity to worship together this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we can place our trust in you. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the example that Gideon provides for us. Help us to learn from it and apply it accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I know it's different today, but when I was in high school, you had to take a driver's ed class in order to get your license. It was a semester class at school, and it was right alongside your English class and your science class, okay, your math class. There was bookwork and tests and quizzes, and you got a grade for the class. And you received a certificate that you had to take down to the DMV in order to take your real driver's test. And in this class, I remember there was something called a driving simulator. I don't know if that's the real term for it, but it was a, it was a machine, it was a contraption, okay? And you would, you would sit in a chair, it had a steering wheel in it, and it had a block of wood down below that was supposed to represent a brake, okay? Then there was a monitor in front of you, okay? A TV screen and a real grainy video that played on the monitor, okay? Some of you are nodding, you know what I'm talking about. And you were supposed to pretend you were driving, right? Okay, you would be driving along, and then a stop sign would appear, okay? You would be driving along, and you would come across a traffic light, okay? 
Or you were driving and a dog all of a sudden ran in front of the car and you had to, to swerve it, okay? Or you were driving calmly along and someone cut you off all of a sudden. Kind of like out here at Powers, okay? <laughs> all right, very similar uh, to that, okay? Now, as teenagers, we didn't really care a whole lot about the driving simulator, all right? That didn't interest us a whole lot. We could care even less about the tests and the quizzes and the bookwork. We wanted to drive, right? We want to get behind the wheel of the car and get going, okay? So after several months had gone by in the semester, the time had finally arrived to get behind the wheel and do some real driving out on the road. And my driving instructor in my class for this particular semester was also the school's basketball coach, okay? And he was a really nice guy. He was a very good coach. He had been at our school for, for decades, all right? And I don't remember a whole lot about the experience, but I do remember when we were driving, he would be giving a scouting report on the next opponent, okay? <laughs> and so we may not have produced a whole lot of good drivers at my high school, but we had a really good basketball team, okay? <laughs> so we had our priorities in order. But I remember when I first learned to drive, okay, I would look down for the brake, okay? Maybe some of you guys remember that. I would, I would just be unsure that the brake was actually there. And Coach Connors would say, you can't be looking down there in the middle of driving. You have to trust that the brake is there, okay? He would say, was the brake there the last time you stopped? Yes, sir, it was there. He said, is the brake going to be there the next time you stop? I said, I'm pretty confident it will, it will be, okay? He said, trust me, the brake will be there, okay? You can't be looking for it while you're driving. As we look at the story of Gideon, we see someone who struggles to trust in God, God has a very specific job, a very specific task for Gideon, but he has to trust in the Lord in order to complete this job. It's a journey for Gideon. It's a journey for him to learn to trust in God. So over the, over the next few minutes, let's look at Gideon's journey. And there are three steps that Gideon takes in learning to trust in the Lord. The first step we see in Gideon's journey to trust God was doubt. Doubt. Now, that's not a great place to begin, okay, if we're honest. But doubt was reality for Gideon in the beginning of his journey. As we saw, the Lord gave Gideon some wonderful promises, some powerful promises, and Gideon didn't exactly embrace them. In fact, he made excuses as to why he couldn't trust those promises. And a look at the context of our passage helps us understand how challenging it was for Gideon to trust the Lord. It's important to remember that the book of Judges is part of the history, an important part of the history of Israel. It covers the time between Joshua and Samuel, 
Obviously, it's before Israel had a king, before the time of Saul and David and Solomon. And importantly, Judges describes a pattern or a cycle of sin that Israel is involved in. And not to be too simplistic, but basically the pattern was this. Israel would worship God for a while and then start to worship idols. For example, during Gideon's time, they had built an altar to Baal. And this was deliberate, deliberate disobedience by Israel and a breaking of their covenants that they had made with God. And eventually what would happen is that the Lord would allow another nation, a neighboring nation, to overrun Israel. In the passage we just read, Midian was that conquering nation. Look at verse 1 in Judges 6 again. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In some versions it says, again, okay, capitalized and in bold text. Again, the Lord did evil. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So because of their sin, Israel would become subject to a neighboring nation. Now, eventually, the Israelites would recognize and acknowledge their sin and reach out to God for forgiveness. God would hear them and send what we call a special leader. And these special leaders were, in fact, the judges. The judges helped Israel escape from the nations that had conquered them. And there were 12 judges in Israel's history. Gideon was one of those judges. And you also may remember the stories of Deborah and Samson, who were also judges. So that's the pattern or cycle of sin that Israel was in during this time period. And in the verses we just read, Israel is in the part of this cycle or pattern where they are starting to come around. They're starting to repent finally. There had been seven years of Midianite oppression. And the oppression had been so bad that the Israelites were forced to live and hide in the mountains and in caves. Verse 3 tells us that the Israelites would plant their crops, but the crops would be ruined, destroyed, stolen by these Midianites. The Israelites' sheep, cattle, and donkeys would also be killed. And notice again the description of these Midianites in verses 5 and 6. They were so numerous that it was impossible to count them or their camels. And the NIV says the Midianites invaded the land in order to ravage it. The ESV says they laid waste to the land. And what was Israel's reaction to this situation? They cried out to God for help. Again, very consistent with their pattern. So what was God's response to their cry for help? Well, he first sent an unnamed prophet who reminded Israel of their deliverance from Egypt. This prophet then reminded the people of their worship of other gods and their failure to listen to the Lord. So it's in the middle of this dire situation when we're first introduced to Gideon. And he's given a promise from God. An angel visits Gideon. This is what he says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. 
The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But it's important to notice what Gideon is doing when he receives this message from the angel. Verse 11 tells us that Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. Now don't overlook that brief sentence or that description. A wine press was a deep hole in the ground, obviously, usually lined with stones. It's where they stomped grapes, okay, juiced grapes. But what's Gideon doing down there? He's threshing wheat. And is a wine press the normal place where you would thresh wheat? It's not. You want to thresh wheat outside, out in the field, right? Okay? Because you need the wind to blow away the chaff. Because you only want the grain to remain. Why was Gideon threshing wheat in this wine press? Well, he was hiding from the Midianites. He was scared. He was afraid. He'd been outside. He probably would have been harmed. And for sure, his grain stolen. But this is the man that God has selected to rescue the Israelites from their oppressors. And he's hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat. Look again at the promises Gideon has given. Verse 12, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Verse 14, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And verse 16 says, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. And you would hope that Gideon would embrace these promises, that he would step up to the plate and go forward with confidence in what God was calling him to do. Instead, the opposite occurs. He's full of doubt. Gideon's first step in trusting God is one of doubt. Look at verse 13. Gideon asks, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders? Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us, put us into the hand of Midian. And then verse 15 describes even more doubt, as one commentator suggested. Gideon tells God that he's the youngest son of the poorest family of the weakest tribe in Israel. How can Gideon possibly save Israel? Again, not the greatest start in this journey of trusting the Lord. But God is patient. He's patient with Gideon. He's patient with us. And he provides an answer to Gideon's question of how can I save Israel? Verse 16 provides God's answer. The Lord tells Gideon, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Despite Gideon's doubt, God reassures him, promises to be with him. Now we come to the second step in Gideon's journey to trust God. He made requests of God, okay? He asked for signs from the Lord. This takes place in the second half of chapter 6. We don't have time to read all those verses, but here are a few. Gideon says in verse 17, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And what's God's response? 
says, I will wait, I will wait until you return. And the next few verses describe how Gideon prepared his offering and how he presented it to the Lord. And we're told that an angel of the Lord touched the offering and fire consumed it immediately. And here's Gideon's response. Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So perhaps now we're starting to see some growth in Gideon's faith. Perhaps he's beginning to trust in God. And the next thing that happens is that God made a request of Gideon. Okay, God makes a request of Gideon. And Gideon is told to tear down that altar to Baal, build one to the Lord. And the expectation is that Gideon will eagerly and with confidence do just that. Well, listen to verse 27. It says, Gideon took 10 of his servants, did as the Lord told him. Okay, so far, so good. He's on the right path. But the verse continues. Because Gideon was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Yes, Gideon did tear down that altar to Baal, but he did so at night because he was scared. A few steps forward, a couple of steps back. I think we can all relate to that. And Gideon is eventually discovered as the one who tore down Baal's altar and replaced it. And we're told that the men of the town wanted to kill Gideon, but Gideon's father convinced them otherwise, and God spared Gideon's life. And then we come to probably the most familiar part of Gideon's story, the part the kids this summer knew the best. Okay, Verses 36 through 40 describe Gideon's next request of God, the next sign that he wanted to see. Despite God's previous promises, despite God saving his life, Gideon said the following to the Lord, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Scripture tells us that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece, wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. God had honored Gideon's request. He had provided a sign. Now, surely Gideon was good to go now, right? He had to have 100% trust in God at this point. Instead, he asks for another request, doesn't he? He wants the opposite to occur. This time, Lord, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. Covered with dew. And verse 40 ends the chapter. It says, That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. So to summarize where we are at this story so far, God was going to rescue Israel from the Midianites. He was going to use this guy Gideon to do so. Gideon was a judge. He was their leader. But Gideon had to learn to trust in God if he was going to be successful. And so far, Gideon had demonstrated doubt 
as evidenced by the continued signs and requests he asked of God. But God, once again, is patient with Gideon and had provided the signs he had requested. But now the story pivots rather dramatically in chapters 7 and 8. And this leads to the third step in Gideon's journey to trust God. Gideon became committed to the job. He became committed to the task that God had for him. And there's no turning back at this point. If Gideon's committed, he has no choice but to trust in the Lord. One of the unexpected blessings of serving at our church the last few years has been the opportunity to make hospital visits. Now, obviously, we wish nobody from our church family was in the hospital or in a long-term care facility, but with a church our size, it's, it's bound to happen. There's usually someone or, or multiple folks who are struggling with an illness or an injury, and they've been hospitalized. And it's been a privilege to make some of these visits. And as an aside, we as a staff can do a better job in this area, and we'll do that. But I'm always amazed after a hospital visit or a long-term care visit, I'm supposed to be the one providing support and encouragement to those that we are visiting. But what normally happens is the opposite. And it happens especially with couples who have been married for many years and many decades. And the scene is usually the same when visiting with these precious couples. You go into their room, you go into the hospital room, the long-term care room, and you usually see something very similar. You can see how long somebody has been in the hospital because their spouse has kind of moved in as well. There's usually mail that's been brought from home that's kind of scattered around the room. Favorite books, favorite magazines are also in the room. Special snacks, treats are by the bedside table or with some of our folks, they're hidden because they're not supposed to have them, okay? <laughs> Cell phones are charging nearby. And sometimes the spouse who's not actually in the hospital has a change of clothes sitting on a chair nearby just in case, just in case these clothes are needed. And one of the most common questions that I get asked, and it's an honest question, is, what day is it? Is it, is it Tuesday? Is it, is it the weekend yet? Because for these couples, most of their days are very much the same. There's not a whole lot of variety in their days. And so we talk, and we visit, and we pray. We read Scripture share stories, but almost inevitably, I can't help it, and I ask the same question to these various couples. And it's not a flippant question, it's a genuine question, but I ask, how do you guys do this day after day, week after week? For some of you, it's been month after month. How do you continue 
in this journey? And the answer from these couples is almost always the same. And it's very humbling. And it goes something like this. Husband or the wife will say, we got married in 19 such and such. We made a commitment back then for better or for worse. And to be honest, most of our married life has been in that better category. And we praise God for that. But in recent times, we've experienced some of that other category, unfortunately. But I'm committed to him, or I'm committed to her, so I'm not going anywhere. I was here yesterday, I'm here today, and if the Lord gives us another day, I'll be here tomorrow. And they say, where else would I be? Where else? would I be? And that's what commitment is all about, isn't it? That's commitment. That's real life. Okay? I'll be here. Where else would I be? Some of you have been through this. Others are going through it now. Many of us will go through it in the future. But for Gideon, his commitment is evident now. He's turned the corner. He's made that commitment to what God has called him to do. The commitment is part of his journey in trusting God. Again, and very briefly, let me hit just a few of the highlights from Judges 7 and 8. And notice through these examples how Gideon's commitment is now in play. In Judges 7, Gideon assembles 32,000 troops. And the Midianites are just north of them. But God tells Gideon, you got too many men. Too many. And he says, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave. In other words, those who are scared can leave. You can take off. And so 22,000 of them take advantage of that opportunity, and they're gone. And Gideon is left with 10,000 men, 32,000 down to 10,000. You know what the rest of the story is. God says, that's still too many people, Gideon, still too many. And he weeds quite a few more out based on how they drink water from a nearby stream. And when all is said and done, Gideon has a grand total of 300 men to fight the Midianites. Started with 32,000, down to 300 now. And from our perspective, those numbers don't look real good, do they? But God wants Israel to know for sure who's going to rescue them. They're not going to be rescued from the Midianites because of their own strength or their own power, the credit will belong to the Lord. So Gideon's journey continues. He's committed. He's learning to trust, and he's pushing forward. Another highlight. God tells Gideon to take his servants. Go to the outposts of the Midianites' camp. Gideon and his servant obey. When they do, when they get there, They hear a conversation 
between two men within the Midianite camp. One of these Midianites is sharing a dream he had, and the other guy is interpreting the dream. And the dream is about Gideon and how God will give the Midianites into Gideon's hands. Judges 7.15 says, When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He worshipped God. Think how far Gideon has come now. He didn't question the dream's interpretation. He didn't ask for another sign. He didn't make a request. He worshipped God. There are additional highlights in chapters 7 and 8, but we'll conclude with the battle itself. We're told that Gideon returned to Israel's camp and he called out, The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Gideon is committed to what God has called him to do and he's trusting in the Lord. Next, he divides those 300 men into three groups, gives them trumpets, ram's horns, gives them empty jars with torches inside. That's it. That's the weapons they're supposed to use for this battle. It's all they have. Gideon trusted God, trusted his plan, including the weapons they were supposed to use. Keep in mind, this is the same Gideon who just a few verses earlier was hiding in a wine press. Now he's leading men into battle with trumpets, empty jars, and torches. And he tells the men, follow my lead and do exactly as I do. Gideon is leading because he's committed. And what's the result? Verse 20. The three groups or companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And the next thing we read is that the Midianites attacked one another as they fled. It was a complete and total victory for Gideon and the Israelites. The remaining verses describe how Gideon and his troops chased down the Midianite kings and their troops. And we're told in Judges 8.28 that, that Midian was subdued before the Israelites and they didn't create any more trouble for God's people. And during Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Gideon's journey to trusting God, doubt, requests, and commitment. And perhaps you're saying, yeah, I see that, but God isn't calling me to do something quite as dramatic as Gideon. Probably not, it's probably true. But perhaps he's calling each of us to do something just as important, but on a smaller scale, maybe behind the scenes. Like maybe he's asking you as a parent to finally start having those devotions with your children that you've been thinking about for a couple of months, having devos with them before they go to sleep. Maybe he's calling us to get up 20 minutes earlier each day 
so we can pray before our day begins. Maybe you're supposed to go meet those new neighbors up the street who just moved in. I can relate to that one. Maybe he's calling you to help out in one of the ministries here at our church. Children, youth, music, the tech team, you fill in the blank. Maybe he's asking some of you to take a few things off your plate. Okay, Maybe some of you are doing too much and you need to create a little more space. You can provide the example, fill in the blanks, but our question remains the same. Will you trust him? And perhaps you're here this morning and you haven't even begun that spiritual journey. Maybe this is step one. You have doubts about whether God even has a plan for your life and how Jesus would even fit into it. Let me encourage you, the most important step each of us can take is to trust in Jesus, accept by faith what he did on the cross for each one of us many years ago. He died in our place and rose again three days later. And if that's all new to you, or you'd like to talk more about it, I encourage you to visit with us at the back of the worship center during the next song or after the service. Pastor Devin will be there. Some of our deacons will be there. We would welcome the opportunity to share more with you what it means to trust in God and to trust in Christ. Let's pray together.